Thank you for subscribing to KCWG The Truth Extra, our premium content channel. We have copies of our shows, plus exclusive content from our hosts and their guests. Also, as a subscriber, you'll be invited to participate in giveaways and events. Thank you for supporting and listening to KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio on the planet. Rome. 
Uh, I'm originally from Southern California, and that's where I actually met Russ. And if you hear the archives on the uh, Facebook page, Real Love, Real Talk Uncut on the Facebook page, you actually can get an opportunity to hear a little bit of how we came together while I was down in Southern California, because as you know, I live in Northern California now. And I came up down there. I worked in education for many years as a substitute teacher, uh, probably 14 to 15 years to be exact. And then I developed an interest in psychology after working one-on-one with a particular young man who was very troubled emotionally. And I was able to help him turn his life around. And so that experience right there gave me the impetus, if you will, to go forward and go back to school, get that degree, and do what I had to do to become a psychologist. So I am an active psychologist practicing in Northern California. I love what I do, and I wouldn't have, I couldn't have, I should say, I couldn't have chosen a better career. But prior to all of that, as much as I love that, um, I'm called DJ Rome for a reason. I've been DJ Rome for a very long time. I'm part of a musical collective down in Southern California called the Soul Children, and it's not the You're listening Soul to Children exciting premium content on KCWGTheTruth.com. Uh, the hit song, The Sweeter He Is, it's not that Soul Children, but we're an L.A.-based crew, and we do an event called Juju, and it's a group of artists and DJs and promoters. We came together under the auspices of wanting to create something a little bit different, a little bit more soulful, a little bit more vibish in order to attract a certain conscious audience. And so I'm proud to say that we've been able to endure over the years, and that is a movement that is definitely still moving. So there was a history to DJ Rome even prior to that. So I wanted to introduce you to some people tonight and take you down memory lane as I uh, tell you about my immediate family was comprised of all women, my mother, my grandmother, my two aunts, two sisters, two cousins, all women. I'm the youngest. So... (laughs) You can imagine what the uh, the stair steps look in that family. I was the youngest and the only guy, right? But there were three men that spoke into my life as I was coming up, and I want to spend some time talking to you about them. I call them the three willies. Now, who are the three willies? Like the movie Free Willy? These were the three willies. All these men that I'm going to describe to you tonight that had an influence on me are all named Willie. First one I want to tell you about is Little Willie. Uh, Little Willie came into my life when I was somewhere around age... Uh, somewhere between maybe 9, 10, or 11. And he met my grandmother uh, down in Southern California, and he himself was a Southern um, resident before relocating to California, as did my grandmother. My grandmother was born and raised in Jackson, Tennessee, before relocating to raising her daughters in Indianapolis, Indiana. And then from there they relocated to Southern California, where one of those daughters that she had ended up being my mother, who raised me down in L.A. And so I think with little Willie, what gravitated him toward Grandma was that he was also into the church as she was. And I think the only difference was what he said was in his church compared to her church, they didn't spend as much time actually teaching from the Bible. (laughs) And just so you know, um, I grew up in a church called Ever – no, that was a TV show. The church was called Crenshaw Christian Center. It's still there. And the television ministry that stemmed from that is called Ever Increasing Faith, led by, back then, Dr. Frederick Casey Price. And so Grandma brought us into that church once she discovered it, and the whole family actually eventually became members of that church. Okay, so Little Willie noticed that there was a, a more dedicated commitment toward teaching 
from the Bible itself. And so I don't know exactly what that story was, but I remember the discussion. And so for that reason, he ended up leaving his church and joining Grandma's church. And so I bring him up for this reason. I would say Little Willie's role in my life was he brought uh, the Spirit into my life in a sense in this way. I already had the Spirit, but what Little Willie did, he was the first and only man to ever take me to church, okay, of any kind, you know, outside of a funeral, um, I've never had a man pick me up and take me to church, and he was the only man to do that for me. And there was one particular Saturday that I can recall, normally I would get up and go to my bowling league because down in Southern California, I used to go to Midtown Bowl in West L.A., and it was on Venice Boulevard. Upstairs was Midtown Bowling Center. Downstairs, back in the day, was World on Wheels Skating Rink. I don't know if it's still there, but that was sort of home base. And every Saturday morning, particularly in middle school, I would look forward to uh, doing my bowling thing on Saturday morning. And so Little Willie approached me one day and said, well, uh, there's this men's retreat, and uh, since you do that bowling thing every Saturday, I was thinking you wouldn't mind missing it one Saturday and coming to this retreat with me. And I was like, well, actually, I kind of do mine because I kind of like getting my bowl on. But all right, I wasn't at the age of consent, so I couldn't really protest very much, and it was for a good purpose. So we go to this retreat. And it was held at a banquet hall. And what I can remember, it was a room full of men. And they, at some point, were sharing testimonies and sharing stories. And there was one gentleman who talked about being a rookie police officer, suddenly coming to terms with the fact that he could possibly be in a life-threatening situation where he actually might have to kill somebody. And I remember a veteran uh, brother was there. He was a Christian, and he was also a cop. He actually had his firearm on him at the time. And he was just kicking some wisdom to him to sort of encourage him that, you know, he'd, he'd gentleman who stood up and he was giving a testimony about his son and how he had found himself in critical condition. I can't recall if it was a car accident. I can't recall if it was a fall. I don't remember if it was shots fired. I, I can't remember. It was just too long ago, but he was about to lose his son and he was in critical condition. And I remember that gentleman speaking very pointedly and he looked directly at Dr. Price. And I remember this very vividly. And he said, I remember you, Dr. Price. I remember you said when you were thinking about your son, you were saying, please, Lord, don't take my child. Don't take my son. And he started looking into his own situation. And he said, no, devil, you're a liar. In the name of Jesus Christ, my son is healed. And so at that point, the whole room just stood up. You know, this is a room full of men. We're not known for showing a lot of emotion. But that whole room stood up and clapped and cheered. And one of the assistant pastors who was helping run the, meet, run the meeting, he asked the gentleman, so where's your son now? And the gentleman said, he's right here. And so at that moment, a young boy, maybe age 10 to 11, stood up and walked over to the assistant pastor and gave him a big hug. Big hug. And then I turned and looked at Dr. Price. Dr. Price was bawling. He was bawling. I mean, he was crocodile tears. I had never seen anything like it. I'd never seen a man cry so hard. And what I found out after the fact was that I think Dr. Price actually suffered a loss. I can't recall the exact story, but I think he lived through the loss of a child. And so there was something in that man's testimony that resonated with him so deeply that it broke him down. There was still a line full of guys remaining to share some testimony, but the assistant pastor said, no, we're going to have to cut it right there. we we, we got to end this meeting. It's we we got to go. It was that deep for him. And so... I remember that and coming away from it and saying, you know, this wasn't so bad. And so 
Little Willie did that for me. He was the one and only man to ever take DJ Rome to church. And because of that sort of poignant experience, I eventually did forgive him for making me miss my bowling Saturday. <laughs> but he still owes me one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then there was another Willie. I called this one Big Willie. Okay, there was Little Willie, then there's Big Willie. Big Willie was named Willie Goldston. Okay? Big Willie I refer to as my stepfather. He never married into the family, but he was... He saw my mother for many years, and he came into my life when I was about five years old. And um, he was that guy, man, Big Willie. He was, how, how do you describe him? He, he, was, he was a helicopter mechanic who worked for Hughes Aircraft, and he was just that dude, man. He was an alpha male. You know, he was an alpha male kind of cat. And so what I got from Big Willie was, and this was the, the biggest takeaway that I got from Big Willie, Big Willie gave DJ Rome the funk. You know, I got to pause when I say it because I know we're on a gospel radio station here, but this is Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. I got to give it to you raw like this. Big Willie gave DJ Rome the funk, all right? So it was only when I would go to his place that I could hear the music that I loved, that I grew to love even more when I would spend time at his place. You know, he, he sort of lived a bachelor lifestyle, even though he was seeing my mother exclusively. He had his own place, okay? So he, he when he played his music, he turned it up loud. It's like, that's how I always wanted to experience music, because I was into that. But I grew up in a very conservative household. And so, not that we were so prude that we didn't listen to music that was on the radio, but there was only so far that I was allowed to, you know, get into the enjoyment of my music. And with Big Willie, I could let my hair down, man. It's like I had a jerry curl back then, too, so I would let her rip. And he would turn it up loud, and it was through him that I, I learned to appreciate uh, the sort of the, the variance in music and those little sound textures, the, the sonic experience of music and the subtleties of that. I got that from Big Willie. He would teach me that if the music sounded a little muddy at times, he taught me that, okay, maybe you need to turn the mid-range up and down a little bit. That's what that knob is there for, okay? If you can't hear the, the tick, 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 tick of that cymbal on that drum, on that drum kit, because he liked to have crystal clear highs when he listened to music. He liked a deep thumping bass, but he also liked to have those highs, and so the sound was really balanced. And I remember sitting in the living room with this cat, man. He turned the music up loud, and man, we, man, we were bumping when I would be with Big Willie. We would be bumping. And by the way, if I didn't mention at the top of this show, this segment eventually is going to be called something called like Psychotic Bump School. This is the reason why. <laughs> this is the reason why. I got that bump from Big Willie. We would sit in his living room, and we would be listening to tunes, and I would have to suddenly turn my head to the left, suddenly, because I would hear something that would sound so loud and clear that I thought somebody was actually had stepped into the room. But I, I would turn, and it was just the speaker. It would sound that crystal clear. He had big house speakers. He had an enormous home entertainment system. And when I tell you that this man valued his home entertainment system, it was years, years before he would even let me touch it. I couldn't even touch He would Big Willie would not even let me touch his records, okay? He would not let me touch his records. And I'm talking we were bumping. We had Slave. We had Sun. We had some Zapp and Roger. We had Faso. We had Ohio Players. We had Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton. Man, we were in it. Midnight Star, we were doing it. But You're listening to exciting premium content on KCWGTheTruth.com. Records were something to be preserved. I mean, this is a this is a, a, a an article of history right here. You, you you take care of it. You respect your music. Okay, it took. He wouldn't even let me put a record on his turntable. He wouldn't even let me press play on the cassette deck. He wouldn't even let me press the on button to turn it on. He he was that serious with his. 
okay? And then when he was comfortable enough to let me hand the records to him, he's like, okay, I would have to pull the vinyl. <laughs> I would have to pull the vinyl out of the, the plastic sleeve, out of the album jacket, and make sure that my, the middle finger, the bad finger, would, would, would stay fixed on that little hole in the middle of the 12-inch vinyl, and my thumb would be cased around the edging of the, of the vinyl. But you, you wouldn't touch that playing surface. I mean, his records had no smudges, no fingerprints on the playing surface, because what, that, that's that spot, man. That's what the DJs call, they call vinyl records black gold. You know, the, the, the DJ and the vinyl purists, it, it, it's black gold, because you don't want to mess with that surface. And I guess that's why I never really became a cut and scratch kind of DJ, because I, I didn't come up that way. He taught me to love my music. This is an article of history. This is, this is an artifact. And it has to be preserved. He was that serious. He was that serious with it. So that was what I got from Big Willie. He gave me such a profound appreciation of music, how to take care of it. And we would just we would just do that bump when, whenever we would be together. But something else I got from Big Willie, Big Willie was an alpha male. Okay? When I tell you he was an alpha male, he was, a, he was, he was that dude. Okay? So on those Saturdays when I wasn't going down to... Uh, the bowling alley, I was going to the gym with him so he could shoot that hoop. And so I remember, you know, and I wasn't really a basketball player. You know, I was more into baseball, but I would go with him. And those cats would get into it, man. I'm talking on Crenshaw Boulevard, whatever gym that is on 50th and 60th. And it wasn't just that one, but it would be wherever because, you know, Big Willie came up in Fremont High School. I mean, he was just one of those dudes. He was a jock, okay? And so that's, he was all about that. And so I remember when I would go outside and play a little basketball. I'm not really a basketball player. I'm not into this March Madness that's going on right now. You know, I respect it. I know people are really excited about, you know, March Madness, but I never quite got into it. But I remember taking breaks, playing ball with the kids that I was able to play with, and then we would take a break, and then the, the, the adults would take a break, and we would have snacks. So people would lay out this little banquet table and put some dip and chips. It could be Doritos or Ruffles, and the big, the big bag would be open, and my hands are dirty from sweating and playing ball. I got black hands, right? And uh, I turned to Big Willie. I said, um, you, can, you, can you show me where the bathroom is so I can go wash my hands? And he said, boy, if you don't just reach in that bag and get them chips. <laughs> so what he was saying to me was that, you know, we men here. We are men here. You know, you got to man up. You know, we, 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 we don't have time for that prissy stuff here. It's like you got to man up. And so I love that dude. I miss that dude. Um, I got a lot from him. We definitely were butt heads, you know, from time to time. But, you know, that, that was my dude right there. And so that's Big Willie. I got one more Willie. This Willie is William James DeVace, my father. Like I said, all three of these cats were named Willie. My father's government name was William, but throughout his life he was called Willie. My father was a singer and an auto mechanic, transmission auto mechanic, so he was, he was that cat too. And uh, my father actually sang with a singing group called the Olympics. Now, if you go to your computer or your phone right now and Google the Olympics R&B singing group, uh, what will come up is a group that had Billboard Top Ten hits. Okay, my father sang with them. Okay, they had top ten hits such as Big Boy Pete, Western Movie, and Hully Gully. Now, that in itself would be remarkable enough because you can tour for life on just one hit record. And my father's group, the Olympics, had multiple hits. Excuse me, he, he wasn't a, an original member. He didn't sing on those tracks as an original member. He wasn't a founding member, but he sang with them for the last 30-some years of his life. But they had one more song that was also a part of every single show that they did. 
it was common practice back then for black groups to record a song and perhaps experience localized success. And that same song would be re-recorded, remade, rearranged later for a more white group and not, not a more a white group who had more of a sort of a musical uh, industry apparatus supporting it. And so now you got mainstream attention because the, the group is white singing this same song that was originally done by black artists. And if you need a visual on that, think about Elvis Presley singing Hound Dog. Okay. And I'm going to tell you, you, you haven't heard Hound Dog until you heard the original version done by Sister Big Mama Thornton. Okay. It was just common practice. And so the last song that my father's group is known for is a song called Good Lovin'. Now, if you Google, if you Google "good loving" right now, it's credited globally to a group called the Young Rascals. The Young Rascals turned that into a global smash hit record, went all over the world, monster hit, and it, it's it's played generation after generation. It's still around today, and still to this day, there's still some members of the Olympics that are carrying on that tradition. And my father sang that song for 30 some years on the road all over the world with the Olympics. And so what I got from Pops is uh, I got song structure. I got melody. I got harmony. Pops was all about that multi-part harmony because he was a singer. And when I say a singer, Pops had a deep, deep voice. Okay, I'm talking Melvin Franklin of The Temptations. I'm talking Barry White. You think about those two cats, now you're talking about my Pops. He had a voice that would just knock you down, would just bowl you over like bowling pins, (laughs) like a bowling ball. You know, I was talking about bowling earlier, but... Dude had a voice. It, it would just knock you down, all right? And when he spoke, it would just, just engender a lot of attention. And he sang bass, not tenor, not baritone, bass. And Pops was deep with it. And I tell you, one of the things that he taught me was melody and song structure. He gave me this guitar when I was about 12 years old, and he said, okay, so this is how you do it, man. It's like it, they're called ice cream chords, right? So you, you, you form a C major, you move to an F, and then a G, okay? You learn how to play those three songs, you can play any song that you can think of. He called them ice cream chords. And so I learned those ice cream chords, and eventually I would take some jazz guitar lessons. I don't play guitar now, but I got all that from him, you know, just how to build a song, how a song should move. I learned multi-part harmony and an appreciation for it through my pops. And so I got frustrated with the progress on guitar, so I had him, I gave it back to him. And then... One day at Audubon Junior High School, <laughs> also in Southern California, um, there was this, this group of guys that came up and they were uh, playing. They were playing some music by an artist that we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, they had their guitars and they had the hair going. You know, like I said, I had the jerry curl back then. So they had that going. And when they started playing that music with them guitars, the girls started screaming, just losing their mind. And I said, all right. I called Pops. I said, yo, man, bring, bring me my axe, man. Bring that guitar back to me. And so from that point, it started this odyssey of just appreciating music on a different level. And from that, I taught myself how to play bass. Because if you know anything about guitar, uh, it's not that far of an extension to learn bass because it's just the bottom four strings. And so I was self-taught on bass, and I got good enough so I could jam with my father. Now, I never played on stage with my father, but... I was able to get good enough or become good enough to where we could be in his living room and we could just be going at it. You know, my big brother David would be there and he would be keeping time for us. Pops would be on the lead guitar, throwing a vocal here and there. I would be on bass. We would improvise some things. And then my brother would be thumping on the couch, whether it be on the couch itself or a pillow from the couch or a bucket. It didn't matter. He would keep time for us. And that was our family band. And that's how we got down. 
But I, I got all that from my father. So the three willies, man, the three willies, in addition to those um, tender people that I mentioned to you before, my domestic family, my extended family, the soul children, all of that and all of those people helped to build DJ Rome. So once again, this is KCWG, thetruth.com. This show is called Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. My name is DJ Rome. We're going to be bringing T. Russ in in a little bit, as well as our guest, A. Sky Galloway, in a short while. But before we do, I wanted to share a story with you because I just recently had a chance to um, go across the country to uh, visit a place that I've been wanting to visit for a little while, and it was done out of fulfillment of... Um, a birthday gift that I gave to my sweetheart because uh, she was a big fan, as I am, continue to be. And so I wanted to share, share this story with you, and then we're going to take a break and bring T. Russ on, and we're going to chop it up a little bit. Um, this story is by a singer um, that was the ex-girlfriend and band member of the artist tonight. Her name is Susanna Melvoin, and she has a twin sister named Wendy Melvoin. <laughs> All right. And so Wendy Melvoin, if that rings a bell, she's a part of the duet that is called Wendy and Lisa. All right. And so what they're known for now are scoring films, working behind the scenes, and um, not so much putting out as much uh, of their own albums, but they create scores and soundtracks for other artists and movies. And so, but Wendy and Lisa should ring a bell to all of us. But this is an account that was told by Susanna Melvoin. So here it is. I remember Minneapolis vividly. The air smells of water and earth and the lake that spread throughout the city become and I loved what it was to become when it was an extremely beautiful time in my life. I can narrow down one particular day in 1986 that was particularly special. It was a day I wrote a particular song with him. Sitting around the kitchen table would be he, his engineer, Susan Rogers, and myself. It was a time Susan and myself spent every day with him recording or keeping each other company. He and I spent many hours together, either in the studio, working, or driving around Minneapolis talking to each other and listening to music. We talked about our histories and our secrets, and on a couple of occasions, I told him stories of a 12-year-old girl I had known named Cynthia Rose. My sister Wendy and I knew Cynthia intimately because we shared six years together in a classroom, plus a bus ride to school with her. It was on these bus rides that I got to know Cynthia. Cynthia never had much interest outside of her own personal space, so watching her was an unedited version of what was going on inside her head. I'm certain if Cynthia were in school today, she'd still be as interesting and extraterrestrial as she was back then. I think Cynthia was actually dropped off from another world, a world filled with extraordinary images, images only Cynthia knew the meaning behind. Her favorite number for many years was the number 12. I knew this because she'd rock back and forth in her seat asking you if you knew what her favorite number was for the day. And it was always a shock to her that anyone knew that her favorite number was 12. I'd say, I think it's 12, right, Cynthia? She was totally amazed and joyous that I had guessed it right. I mean, who would have thunk it? I watched how she would ecstatically experience the world. Cynthia, <laughs> Cynthia would tell you over and over again how amazing and meaningful the number 12 was. I asked her, why? Why? And the answer never changed. It was always because it makes me happy. And it was said as she etched a huge happy face with her finger on the damp, foggy bus window. Most of those bus rides, Cynthia sat rocking in her seat, gently repeating her favorite number. Cynthia would also tell me what she had for breakfast. And every day it was the same, starfish and pee-pee. <laughs> I never 
understood that combo meal, and frankly, nobody else could either. This seemed like the deal breaker for most kids. Most importantly, the kids in our class had no interest whatsoever in how Cynthia came to get her morning breakfast. I, on the other hand, thought it was tender and funny, and I listened to her tell me anything she wanted to say, whether it was firmly planted on Earth or from her planet of tender-hearted people who love numbers and draw smiley faces on foggy bus windows. Sixth grade was the last year our class was to be together, and it was the first bus ride of that year that I noticed something was different about Cynthia. We stepped outside of the bus and walked a couple of feet when she leaned into me and said, do you want to know what my favorite number is? I said, it's 12, right? Cynthia's answer, it's 20. Then in her beautiful Martian-like way, she smiled into her hands and said, because it makes me really happy. And she ran off in her Groucho Marx Martian kind of way, repeating the number 20. Now, that year turned out to be very funny for Cynthia and myself. On one occasion, I happened to leave class for a visit to the ladies' room, and I'm about to walk out of the bathroom when I hear the sound of water splashing and giggling coming from one of the stalls. I somehow had a feeling it was Cynthia Rose. The giggle sounded unattached to a real person. It sounded kind of naive and desperate, almost like the sound of crying into a jacket, muffled and hysterical. So as I knocked on the stall door, I asked if it was Cynthia. More giggles, but no answer. I looked under the stall and saw only Cynthia's shoes. And right as I asked her what she was doing in there, she threw the stall door open, and there she was with a big red apple in between her teeth, soaking wet hair and face. She took a bite of that apple and said, I was bobbing for apples in the toilet. It's so much fun. <laughs> I was horrified by what she was doing. Cynthia looked at me in what was to be the last time we would have eye-to-eye -eye contact. She became long-faced and reflective, something I'd never seen from her. Cynthia took my hand as I grabbed as many paper towels as I could gather to dry her off. Without a peep out of her, she looked at my hands as they dried her hands. This is the story about the exceptional Cynthia Rose, who was just one of 25 kids, Kevin, Christopher, Wendy, Sharon, and myself, just to name a few of us who spent every day together for six years. And for those six years, we started off every day greeting Miss Kathleen at her classroom door. We'd be in line outside the classroom. She'd open the door, and one by one, we would greet her and shake her hand and walk to our seats for just another day at school. And all of us were ordinary, all of us, except for Cynthia Rose. Now, this is a true story. One fall afternoon, as I'm going to end this story very quickly, ladies and gentlemen, one fall afternoon in Minnesota, I was at his kitchen table when he came up the stairs from his studio, sat next to me, and asked if I would tell him the whole story of Cynthia Rose again. A few hours later, he asked me if I'd write it down for him. On that afternoon, when he asked if I'd write down the story, I had no idea what was about to happen. He requested that I not go downstairs until he was finished with the track. But one time, just before he went back upstairs, or before he went downstairs, he sat down at the table and said to me, uh, the PP has got to go. <laughs> the PP has got to go. And then he asked me if, if, if it was okay if coffee could be used instead. And I said, yes, of course. Ten hours later, Susan Rogers came upstairs to get me. I walked into the studio, and Prince was standing at the console with a tired, gentle smile on his face. And all he said was, here it is. This is Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. KCWG, thetruth.com. We'll be right back after this.
It was 7.45 all night The preacher teacher missed Kathleen First was Kevin, then came Lucy 39 was me All of us were ordinary Compared to Cynthia Rose She always stood in back of the line Smiled beneath her nose Her favorite number was 20 And every single day you ask her what she had for breakfast, this is what she'd say. Stylefish and coffee, maple syrup and jam, butterscotch pies and a tangerine, cause I have all of a ham. If you set your mind free, baby, maybe you'd understand. Stylefish and coffee, maple syrup and jam. And the singing.
KCWGTheTruth.com, Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. DJ Rome here. I should have my co-host on the line now. T. Russ, are you there? What's up, my brother? You did a good job. Love the monologue. Love the monologue. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks, man. How you doing this evening, brother? I got a real sore throat, man, and I'm glad you did it uh, today. You put it down definitely, and you definitely let the okay. audience know who DJ Rome is. And I sat yes, back today and, uh, in the cut, man, and just chilled and drank some water and just really enjoyed uh, uh, just everything, the episode, man. It was lovely. It was nice. Oh, thank you, man, and you a big part of it, because we just getting started, my brother. I want to send a shout to good brother Starks for uh, filling in with that technical support with the music and whatnot, and um, thank you for uh, giving me that opportunity, because I did have a chance to spend some time in Minneapolis this past weekend, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Okay. and um, I was a big fan of Prince, and my sweetheart also is a tremendous fan of his, and so for Christmas, I actually bought her a, a surprise gift. And uh, it was two tickets to view and tour Paisley Park Studios, oh. which is now called Paisley Park Museum. And so I asked her, do you want to go? And, of course, she said, yeah, let's go. Awesome. So awesome. this past weekend was that weekend. So we went to Minneapolis, man, and we went through Paisley Park. And when I tell you that it's an experience that you all need to go to, I think I have taken an unspoken oath to not disclose too much. Okay. But I would tell you that um, – it was a beautiful experience. His spirit is definitely still there. And I'll give you one or two things because we're going to be talking a little bit about Prince throughout the show. When we bring Mr. Galloway on, we're going to talk about Prince and some other artists as well, and specifically Mr. Galloway's career. But in we were on sort of the private tour, so our, our group was small, right? right. And so we were, were in the atrium. It's like one of the entry ports or entry points of the, uh, the venue. And right away, man, it's like it got really emotional right away for some people in the group because one of his desires was to have his ashes preserved in Paisley Park. So there's actually a little urn or a little uh, box where the actual ashes of Prince are. Wow. And it actually brought some people to tears just knowing that. And when you look on the second level of that opening space, it's a cage full of doves. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's real beautiful. His spirit is still up, all up in there. And I'm going to just share one more thing. I'll probably share some things throughout the show. What, what really touched me, because, you know, I, I share some things about vinyl records and music in general, and he meant so much to me in that way that um, we, we had um, a chance to tour his actual studios. And so we went to see his office, and in his office, man, they pretty much left it untouched from the last day he was there. Wow. And so at his desk are still his tennis shoes that he wore on his last day. Still there. Wow. They got notebooks with his um with his uh lyric lyrical ideas on them, you know? Wow. Still there. And on his desk are um some vinyl albums because on we have a celebration in the DJ culture called Record Store Day that the whole country celebrates in order to preserve the tradition of retail music stores that still sell vinyl records because vinyl records represent sort of a throwback to an era of album formats and it wasn't this singles driven culture as it is now and um prince was very supportive of that movement he actually went to his favorite record store called electric fetus and he purchased those albums and those albums that he purchased still on his desk man well wow. 
It's crazy. So I wanted to share that story from Susanna, and I wanted to get your thoughts about this. What did you think when you heard that story? Were you able to hear most of that story I shared at the end there? No, I heard everything, man. I I, I thought it was awesome, man. I think uh, I think some people can appreciate it, some people can't. You got to get deep in the thought in the music. Um, right. You got to appreciate someone else's thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved it. I loved your tone. I liked how you how you broke it down. Um, mm. You you let me get into that world and go. What's going to happen next? What's happening next? What's going on? And I like oh, wow. stuff like that. I like the drama and the suspense. But I like the fact that uh, it left me with it left me with this. It left me saying to myself, What am I going to leave? Right. What am I going to leave my children? What am I going to leave my friends? Uh, one of one of the things I, I look at Prince. I wish I had more of him. Because a lot of before he died, right right when he died, a lot of things began to expose about Prince how an advocate he was for the small people. Oh, absolutely. You know, for the small people. And I always, you know, that that touched me because I was like, man, I wish I would have had the opportunity to touch people like that. Or maybe some people touching me like that so I can learn. You never get too old where you can learn from somebody. And so I took a lot from that story that you told. Oh, right on, man. And I was hoping you would because the way she was describing that particular song, Starfish and Coffee originally appeared on um, a few albums, but the public knows it off of the album Sign of the Times from 1987. Okay. And so he, um, when he wrote that song and she shared that story, it sounded to me like Cynthia Rose was an exceptional child in the way in which we sort of define exceptional children for an IEP right. or potentially as someone who might have certain needs or certain uh, requirements in order to access her curriculum. She might be on the autistic spectrum. She might be what's considered to be a child with emotional challenges because that behavior could be considered definitely atypical. And so it just made me think that it, it wasn't so much of that. It was that Susanna, the author of that story, was so patient and was so loving and was so embracing of her despite her differences. And whereas other kids were sort of, sort of, um, taken aback to a degree where Susanna would embrace her. And it touched her in such a way that she shared that story with Prince, and he turned it into that wonderful song we just heard. Absolutely. And I shared that version of it. I shared that version of it because you're right. He was into the kids. You know, the first people that played at Paisley Park when the studio was built, it wasn't his influences like Mavis Staples or George Clinton or even James Brown. You know, would you? can you think of who the first group ever that played at Paisley Park? Guess who it was? Who was it? I, I, I wouldn't even guess. Who was it? The Muppets. I heard it, man. The Muppets from Sesame Street, bro. Are you serious? I'm serious. The Muppets. He did a little episode on Muppets Tonight. You, you know what? And I saw that. Yeah. I did see yeah, that. He, In fact, yeah, he just he, played he it not too long ago as a remembrance. I saw that on, uh, I think, uh, TBS or something like that. They showed there you go. There you go. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you're, you're so right. So I think he was all about the kid and that's the kids. And that's what I want to talk to Mr. Galloway about when we bring him on in a second. Because even in that area in Chanhansen, Minnesota, if I said that correctly, uh, his studio is actually surrounded by a lot of preschools and a lot of learning centers. And so I don't think that was just a mere coincidence. I think Prince was all about that. And it was, you know, his, later in his life, toward the, the twilight of his life, he was really, really heavily into the Bible and being a Jehovah's Witness. And so part of his uh, mystique was that he would do 
for others and give to others, but he couldn't allow the attention to come to him as a result of it. But students who had exceptional needs, I think, really, truly had a special place in his heart, and that, that really touched me this past weekend. It really did. And I tell you what, man, that's why we're here. We touch kids, you and I. And, yes. uh, you know, uh, and we've been doing it for a while. And uh, if you can't touch a child, uh, I, don't, I don't know the purpose of why we live because they are the next generation to come. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing a book. I uh, can't tell you the title of that book. It's about children. Uh, I wrote a book on children, wrote a book on foster care, and I wrote a book about how I grew up. And um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, writing it right now because it's all about children and who they're going to become. Uh, the word says that God gave every man, woman, and child a measure of faith according to their purpose. Okay. When I look at every child, he's going to be a man or a woman. He's going to have a purpose if it's not destroyed by people, by the enemy, and by just things out there. So we got to keep it alive. we got to keep it going. That's why we do this show. That's why mm-hmm. we talk, to get the truth out. That's, yes, sir. We must get the truth. Yes, we do. So, um, And in the reason why it's so important, we're about to take a break so we can get Mr. Galloway on here. Yes, but Galloway. The reason why it's so important because there, there's so many – uh, legislative acts that are going on right now with this government. They're trying to pass legislation that actually cuts funding and cuts off the access that students with exceptional needs have to um, go to public schools. They are cutting funding to the, uh, I think, the ESSA that has to deal with secondary schools and education. Right. And so it, it's a heavy time right now. We have this educational secretary who doesn't appear to be sensitive to the needs of inner city children and we, we, we have to be very vigilant about protecting those the, the, the most vulnerable among us, and it was a relief to my heart to see that Prince was all about that, too. But Absolutely. also, if we can take a break right now. Yes, sir. And, um, so we can get Mr. Galloway in here. So this is Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. You're listening to KCWG, thetruth.com. We'll be back on the other side of this break with Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Later. Yes, I drew a picture in school today, one that made her mother cry. Picture of a woman with a drink in her hand, standing by a child with no eyes. Watching to reaction based upon revenge. Babies blown to kingdom come. Crazy logic, cartoon characters look better when they're on the run. Danny dropped a dime on his girlfriend, said he didn't want to go to jail alone. See lives in the same mind, when the father says we all should be stoned. People looking for angels in the sky, whenever they're broken hearted. Love is grown, seeds are sown. Fire don't burn unless it's started. La 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 la. Did you ever feel the life was like looking for a penny in a large room?
www.kcwgthetruth.com. You're listening to Real Love, Real Talk Uncut. My name is DJ Rome. I think we got P. Russ right there. P. Russ in the house. What's up? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you know what's the trip about that song? It was introduced to me years ago as Welcome to the Rat Race, but that's not even the name of that song. But anyway, um, we have a guest tonight. T. Russ, Absolutely. Uh, I want to introduce him to everyone. This is actually somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I've admired this cat from afar, from up close as much as I could over the years. And I can't even recall exactly when we met. But when I think about this brother right here coming up, I remember Black Beat Magazine. I remember Right On Magazine. I remember Jet Magazine. Of course, for the compelling stories, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> not, the, not, not the women on the list. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and so yeah, when yeah. I think about some of the, yeah, you know, yeah. But when I think about urban music journalists from that time, I think about three people. I think about Steve Ivory. I think about Nelson George. And I think about this cat. This is Mr. A. Scott Galloway, ladies and gentlemen. Scott is a prolific Los Angeles-based music journalist. You've seen him on TV shows like Unsung. Um, he's written articles. He preserves the art and the essence of capturing the, the, the liner notes and the players and the cats behind the scenes that make all this music that we hold so dear to our hearts. I don't want to bore you with a long introduction. I just want to get him in here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Real Love, Real Talk Uncut, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Mr. Galloway, are you there? I am presente and uh, sending out the brotherly love. Um, thanks for having me on the program this uh, wonderful evening. I'm sitting here watching the sunset and just been waiting on y'all and uh, looking forward to talking about whatever y'all got for me. <laughs> Absolutely. How you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderful. It's been a good day. I spent most of the day today uh, talking to one of our great black legends, Mr. Clarence Avant. So that's a great day. <laughs> oh, that is a great day. Can you, uh, since we're talking about that, I want to talk to you a little bit about Prince. But since you went there, um, tell us a little bit why it's so important that we talk to people like Clarence Avant. I know who he is, but can you explain briefly who he is and what he means to you? Oh, my goodness. Briefly, I just spent five hours with him, and it was totally off-the-record kinds of conversation. But that, that gentleman, uh, it goes way beyond music. He is an entrepreneur. He is a, a power uh, broker. He is somebody who's been able to make all kinds of things happen, um, You know, whether it be sports, whether it be him owning and operating for a period of time an oil company, you know, a small independent oil company, whether he, uh, you know, of course, most people know him for the stuff he did in the music industry. He had Sussex Records, which is the record company that gave us Bill Withers, but also Rodriguez, who became an underground star in the United States, but a superstar in Africa, you know, when nobody was checking for his records here um, and all of that. And then he, he later, uh, that was in the early 70s when he had that record company. And by the way, it also gave us, what, Dennis Coffey and the Detroit Guitar Band and Lynette McKee, <laughs> who, who went on to become, a, you know, she came to, to, to California to be a recording artist and to becoming a movie star. But then he started Taboo Records in the late 70s. And, of course, by the 80s, that record company gave us the SOS Band and Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle and, um, 
and even, you know, his old friend Lalo Schifrin, you know, who he had used to be the manager for back mm. in the 60s, and then he did some albums with Lalo, who's, of course, the great Argentine, Argentinian arranger, composer, film music scorer. So, you know, I mean, I, we if we really got into Clarence Avant, that'd be the rest of, of your show, but just say, suffice oh, no. it to say that um, he is a living legend um who is just super incredibly powerful and uh, and i mean when i was talking to him today the the conversation ran from everybody and these are people that he knew from martin luther king to harry belafonte to michael jackson to you know just you know you name it you know that that man had his hands in a lot of different business made a lot of connections and things happen so i just happened to be hanging out with him to 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 wrap it up because he's closing his office he's basically retiring and he's helped me so many Mm. times over the years with different projects that i did on bill withers or the entire taboo catalog and I just wanted to take him to lunch and thank him for, you know, being so good to me and, 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 and accessible because he truly doesn't, you know, hang out and, and talk to too many people. So um, I had a great afternoon. I thought I was going to mm-hmm. be with him for about an hour max, and I got about five hours with that gentleman. And so when you asked me if I wow. had a good day, it, I think it gets much better than that, my brothers. <laughs> awesome. awesome. I, I have to quote yeah. Ice Cube on that. I have to say it was a good day. Because yeah, that's right. Right. I, see, go ahead. Go ahead. And the good day, the good day continues talking to you guys. Yeah. But I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. thank you, man. I'm, I'm blushing. I'm blushing over here. And so the the challenge now is that I'm on my uh, my mobile phone. So forgive me if I talk over you a little bit. I couldn't Okay, no, this was an artist that um, he recorded here. It's one of those very bizarre stories. In fact, there's an entire uh, documentary about this guy, and uh, he went by the artist name simply Rodriguez. And, you know, it, you know Clarence oh, wow. signed okay. all kinds of stuff. He, Clarence signed all kinds of artists to Sussex Records. And the ones that became most famous yeah. were Bill Withers and Dennis Coffey. But he, he also signed yeah. pop artists, rock artists, international artists. And a lot of those artists didn't do well. They weren't promoted properly and, you know, whatever. But for whatever reason, some copies of Rodriguez's record made it to South Africa. And because of the messages and themes okay. of the lyrics, and everything, they became very inspiring anthems over there. And uh, and lo and behold, you know, this guy who nobody was really checking for in America became like a bona fide superstar over there. And so it's a very wow. interesting story. I, and I'm and forgive me for not remembering the name of that documentary, but it was it was very popular and um, very critically acclaimed. So all you have to do is look up Rodriguez documentary, and um, you'll you'll find it. And um, I will. It's definitely worth worth checking out. It's one of those anomaly yeah, type stories in, in, in pop music. Yeah. I know, and you got a million of them, and I should be sitting here with my pencil in hand and taking notes because, see, Russ, remember how we were talking about the ocean? Yes. And how the ocean just represents a vast, infinite amount of knowledge that we can all, we, that none of us can actually fully comprehend. We're all going to have a piece of it. Mm-hmm. And so Scott reminds me of one of those guys, man. I thought I knew something, and yet when I talked to Scott, I realized how... I mean, I just have a drop. I got a, a, a little shot glass of the ocean that I, I have consumed, and I know what I know, but when I talk to Scott, it amazes me how much I don't know. Now, when you talk about Sussex Records and Bill, Rith- Bill Withers, I remember that label, yeah. and I remember how surprised I was to find out that Dennis Coffey wasn't a brother. 
I used to confuse Dennis Coffee <laughs> with. I'm serious. I used to confuse Dennis Coffee. Now that I hear that name, I would confuse him with Claude Coffee K from Mandrill. Now Mandrill is a very black Panamanian <laughs> funk group out of New York, yeah. right? That's and right. so I thought Dennis Coffee was a brother. Dennis Coffee is a white guy. He played with the Funk Brothers, and he wasn't playing. He's still around too, right? Isn't he still around? Yeah, he, he absolutely is still around. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues in, in New York, Kevin Goins, just uh, produced uh, a uh, an unreleased live recording on Dennis Coffee. Um, and again, forgive me, I forget the name of it. It has something to do, of course, right. with coffee, like you know, hot and tasty or something. But it's some live recordings that mm-hmm. that uh, Dennis did back in the early '70s or late '60s uh, at a mm-hmm. nightclub in Detroit. And, uh, you know, so that's mm-hmm. kind of making the rounds. And, and basically it's giving today's journalists an excuse to talk to him. And I, and I can relate. I, I've interviewed Dennis in the past, and I will be interviewing him again for another uh, project that I'm working on. But, oh, man. yeah, man, he was the white cat who, who he be, he was the, the effects guy. So, you know, his first big uh, entrance into the Motown scene was playing on Cloud Nine by The Temptations. So all that psychedelic that's right. that's stuff right. that, that, that came that came to The Temptations through Norman yeah. Whitfield and Barry, Barrett Strong, that yeah. was Dennis Coffey's bag of tricks, all his little pedals and special effects uh, from that white boy right. brought all this, that, that funk to you know, some serious <laughs> sound of young American black music. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Dennis, Dennis is a bad yeah, cat, and of course, and his biggest hit is a song called Scorpio, which you guys all know. I mean, and it became the mid middle oh, yeah. of the show breakdown for Soul Train for many for several years, and and they actually performed mm-hmm. on Soul Train, although I don't think that footage exists. Um, they performed on it, but I've never seen uh, it. I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't think that perf- that that footage made it uh, to uh, to continue to exist. But it was an interracial band because the Funk Brothers was black and white cats and um and that's who he used on his record and he called the group you know dennis coffee and the detroit guitar band because he had about three or four different guitarists all playing at the same time to give you an orchestral feel that's why scorpio kind of had that sound of guitars bouncing all across your speakers right right Uh, man I'm, i'm about to geek out tonight man because this is this is this is this is it right here and so dennis coffee was actually the cat that did black belt jones soundtrack right he did that. That's right. I think he did. Uh, you mentioned Lalo Schifrin earlier, and uh, I, I promise you, audience, I'm not looking this stuff up. But if I recall, isn't that the cat that did Enter the Dragon, or he did some um, the, the music? Yeah, he was. He, okay, he told so, me some great stories about. I mean, he actually befriended Bruce Lee during the making of you know the movie and and the recording of the soundtrack, and that's why he has Bruce you know doing some of his screams and stances and stuff within you know, the soundtrack of the, the main theme of Enter the Dragon. And, you know, Bruce actually gave him some uh, martial arts lessons in his home. And so when I interviewed Lalo and I was he was walking me through his home, he showed me, you know, exactly where Bruce, you know, um, you know, gave him those those martial arts lessons. Man, he's got a little uh, area right off of his private office, and uh, that's where they used to, to go at it, man. It, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Wow. I mean, that was a great day. Just an exceptional day, and again, Clarence Avant made that possible for me with one phone call. And, you know, then I was over <laughs> interviewing this gentleman who has written all sorts of television themes and movie themes and scores, been nominated for mm-hmm. uh, five Oscars, and you know, and I'm just in this guy's Beverly Hills pad, you know, for three hours. Just he, him, and I, and his piano was in the room, so I got a real beautiful uh, music oh, no. lesson. That, that, yeah, man. Wow. 
because Clarence Avon, because when I think about him, I didn't, you, you just re-educated me about Sussex because I know him about as far as the taboo records era with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and how he mentored them. And that's right. You know, we opened the show talking about Prince. And so I want to circle back to that, but, um, well, I'll go into that right now. What, what did Prince, what did Prince mean to you, man? When you, you heard the opening and so Prince was, uh, first brought onto the scene in 1976 until he made his transition just last year. And, uh, can you capture what, what did Prince mean to you when he came on the scene in 76 all the way up until he, uh, reached his peak and beyond that? What, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, I remember the very first time, I think it was more like 78, that I heard Soft and Wet came on the radio, and I was blown away. I'm a drummer as well, so I was just, I was intrigued by this, this song that didn't sound like anything else on the radio, and uh, and they said it was by somebody named Prince, and, you know, I went and bought the 45, and uh, I didn't really get the album or the second album, but I loved Soft and Wet, because it, it, it was just a very unique kind of record, and then, of course, very very shortly afterward, we're finding out that, oh, this guy played everything. He wrote it. He arranged it. You know, he had a little bit of help that we heard about later on from people like Patrice Rush and whatever. But for the most part, you know, he did all of that stuff on his first record by himself. But it wasn't until Dirty Mind when I finally went to go see him. And I was one of the fortunate uh, in the know people to go and check that brother out at a roller skating rink that was in West Hollywood called Flippers. And uh, he did a concert there with his band. This is, you know, Andre, Dez, Bobby Z, Dr. Fink, and Lisa were in the band. And you know, it was just legendary. The dude was like an hour and a half late. In the audience is folks like Johnny Graham and Verdi and White of Earth, Wind and Fire. I think Ray Parker Jr. was in the corner. I mean, cats were like, who is this dude? And they just were like, you know, in the cut, arms folded, let me check this guy out. And after being an hour and a half late, they came mm-hmm. out, and the first tune they, they did was do it all night. And um, and they proceeded to do just about everything off the Dirty Mind album and a couple of things off the second album. He didn't do, if he did anything off of the first record, it was, it was a ballad, like, you know, Baby or, I can't remember. But he did not do Soft and Wet, which disappointed me again. I love that song. But from that, but he was incredible. Mm-hmm. He was transfixing, you know, the band was interesting, you know, I mean, you know, the makeup of them. So, you know, it's it's hard to, to talk about Prince in, in the in the short term, but he was just, as everybody knows, a, a one of a kind. I mean, if he had been, you know, a, a white guy, he probably would have even gotten so much more props because he was basically untouchable. Because, you know, you have people that are like incredible guitar players. You have people who are phenomenal singers. You have other people who are great songwriters. But he did all of that, plus he could dance, all of plus he could perform, plus he had Come a on. style and a vibe that was all his own. Uh, he was very private, and he was super incredibly prolific. When I say private, he was just really good at manipulating the art of mystique, which made people just want to... You're listening to you know, exciting I mean, you, you premium content on KCWG, you know, writing songs for Sheena Easton. I know you guys know the, the, the whole deal with him, so... There's nobody, there's nobody, nobody else in music that nobody. did all of the things nobody. that he did for as long as he did it. And, uh, you know, and, and the work the work ethic was just sick. You know, the dude apparently would get up every day and, and create something, you know, whether it was, you know, a song or a new group concept or, 
you know, an idea for a movie script or whatever. He was just constantly, constantly working and constantly aware of, you know, the clock ticking and that he wanted to make um, an impression on this planet with his creativity. And he is deeply missed, but as we all know, he's got so much music that's come out. And, you know, most of us have only heard or really absorbed a certain percentage of that. Then you add to that the music Mm -hmm. that's sitting in the vault, which I have a very, you know, I'm not necessarily down with everybody wanting to rush, bum rush his vault and, and, and listen to everything. You know I mean? Some of that stuff wasn't meant for public consumption. It wasn't finished or it might've been private stuff. I don't know, man. So, you know, I think that the world needs to really, you know, check out all the stuff that he has already given us because it's a lot. And even if you go back to albums that you think you know inside out, you know, you'll hear new things. You'll discover a new wrinkle within a lyric. You'll hear him playing some incredible stuff, you know, that you didn't really pick up on. You know, all all of a sudden you listen to Around the World in a Day with your headphones instead of your car stereo, and it's a whole nother experience. I could go on and on and on, you know, so... There was just nobody like him, and I don't think there will ever be anyone like him in the future. Wow. You're right. Untouchable. You're right. And I want to talk Untouchable about that. Untouchable. Untouchable. Yeah. And that's why the loss was so profound, because you realize when you consider everything that you said, some people can sing well, some people can dance well, some people can write, some people can play different instruments, and he could do it all by himself. And not only could he do and it do all it by himself, excellent. but he could do it. Excellent. That's what I'm saying. I mean, he could, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so he was excellent. And the other thing that that, that but then when, when you get away from him as an as an entertainer and a creative artist and all of that, toward the end of his life, and you know, I wonder, you know, I have a serious, you know, sometimes I go into a conspiracy theory vibe when it comes to Prince because after all of that mystique I was talking about earlier where he hardly ever did interviews and he was just like, you know, he just made you wonder what Prince was doing all the time. Toward the end of his life, he would get on programs uh, on television and do certain interviews with people where he would start talking about real stuff, where he was starting to try to school other artists about um, their rights and and how – how much how much they could do on their own without a record company or and and he would talk about social political things you know he, he talked about you know what Barack Obama was trying to do and he would talk about chemtrails in the sky and you know and and he was just very knowledgeable cat you know when he started to when he finally started to open up you were fascinated because it's like well gee this guy wasn't just dating beautiful women and and going to the south of France you know he he was connected to the planet and to what was going on man and and he had very serious goals and then all this other thing that he did on the low quietly was really help people i mean you know there's everybody knows now that when clyde stubblefield the great james brown drummer had some medical bills you know all it took was a phone call and prince handled it and he did stuff like that for all kind of people quietly never wasn't about you know getting props for it or whatever he made all that money, and he wanted to be able to do things that were tangible to help people, you know, not give to some organization where he didn't know what was going to happen with his money. But if he could reach out and help somebody like Misty Copeland before she became a famous ballerina, you know, uh, you know, if he could help Clyde Stubblefield, and countless, countless stories, you know, then now we're talking about somebody who wasn't just an incredible musician, but he was a wonderful humanitarian as well, you know, so... 
I'm telling you, mm. we, we lost a real uh, gem on this planet when uh, he mysteriously passed away last year. I guess the anniversary's coming up, what, next month of his passing? It's next month, yeah. We're yeah. coming up on a year yeah. already. That's why I wanted to have you here because I, I the, the time seemed to have gone by so quickly. And to think that we, this time last year, he was here. And right. when you think about that, it, it really plays heavy on the heart when you see artists who pay these enormous uh, robust tributes to him, but none of them can capture the essence of him because essentially nobody can do Prince but Prince. And so I certainly, however, did appreciate the, uh, was it the Academy Awards or the Grammys when uh, Bruno Mars came out with that guitar and he broke out into that guitar solo for Let's Go Crazy? I was like, okay, maybe, maybe there's a little hope <laughs> up in this piece. I, I was surprised yeah, that he I, went there. I, I, knew, I know he's a talented cat, but I, I, I like musicianship. And I, I know you're all about musicians. I know you spoke to a lot of musicians yesterday, Scott. So uh, t talk to me about that a little bit. What do you think about Bruno Mars taking that essence of Prince with as far as the instrumentation? And where is that going as far as the industry? Uh, you know, it, I, I like the fact that Bruno uh, is inspired by the real deal music, and, and he's bringing it back. You know, uh, the 24 uh, carat, whatever that song is, his latest hit. Um, I mean, that one really got me. The, the the one from a couple of years ago that, you know, don't believe me, just watch. I mean, I thought that was that was cool. You know, that was, that was a huge record. But the other one that just sounded like it was so funky and, you know, some real bass drum and bass, and, I mean, it, you could really feel like... Like it was a, a true throwback to you know like 70s funk. I really dug that, and, and I'm glad that he's bringing it. And he can also perform and dance and and all that. He's not Prince by any measure, but I'm. It was very cool right. that that somebody like him, who is like kind of one of the most popular artists in pop and a crossover artist at that. Um, you know, showed his love and respect for Prince. The funny thing is, you know, of all the tributes that I've seen on television, the none of them really compare to a very interesting. You're listening to exciting premium content on KCWG. You're listening to exciting premium content on KCWG. The Truth.com. To Prince that I have seen since he passed away, she did a, a, a very stripped-down version of uh, the beautiful ones. And what was so nice about it is, you know, Prince, in you know, that's from the movie Purple Rain, and, you know, he starts screaming and hollering. It becomes this cathartic thing for him at the end of that song. But when Alex did it, she's a classically trained singer. So she sang the song from top to bottom in this beautiful voice with no screaming, no over-the-top, you know, dynamics or anything. She just, like, made love to that song with her voice. And I think it was just guitar accompaniment. Um, and I was in tears. I mean, and this, this was maybe a week after Prince passed. And, you know, I watched all the TV stuff. I've seen, I've gone to concerts where people have done their Prince tune and, and everything. And it, all of that is cool. You know, everybody's going to do what they're, what they're going to do, and they should be allowed to do that, you know. And people are going to sit back and compare and judge and whatever, but it's for that artist to show their respect. But I'm telling you, I, ha I never saw a Prince tribute as touching as what Alex Isley did uh, a week after Prince died in a little small space. Um, there might have been 30, 40 people in the room, and it was just transfixing. Mm. Wow. Well, I know you did a tribute recently to the Isley Brothers. Didn't they recently release a, a box set that you um, authored liner notes for or something like that? 
That's right. There was a, a box set that covered all of their material. It was like 23 CDs, you know, and it, it was all of the stuff that they did for their own label, which is Teaneck Records. And then it also included, because um, it was owned by the same company, BMG, the, one of their early albums, I think it was their very first album on RCA. Um, and and that was that was amazing to uh, to talk to. Particularly for those notes, I talked to Ernie Isley and Chris Jasper because they were the ones, especially mm-hmm. once you get to that lady, the 3 Plus 3 album in, in 73, up through B, Between the Sheets, they were the ones primarily writing all of those songs, despite what you saw on the record labels that said mm-hmm. all six members of the group That's wrote right. the tunes. Most of that stuff was written right. by Ernie and Chris with some help from Marvin on certain tunes. And well, once in Blue Moon, the other guys right. would help. But, you know, but, but you know, not to take away from the, the, the older original brothers, you know, they did write a lot of stuff, you know, before Ernie and Chris and Marvin came into the band. But once the Youngbloods came in, they really pretty much took over. And that's when the Isleys mor- morphed right. from being a stand-up singing group to a band. And... And they, right. you know, they had the funk, they had the ballads, they had the beautiful covers of James Taylor and um, um, Todd Rundgren, Hello, It's yeah. Me, and all that. Uh, and Cross, Summer Breeze. It was, it was a great period for them. And so I, I love doing those notes, yeah. talking to those guys, because they, they had a lot to offer. And I, I, you know, I don't think that box set is a good place for the, for the this, uh, novice Isley Brothers uh, fan, you know, it's not a place to start. But once you've kind of got your footing with them, if you buy that box set, you will basically have um, about 80% of what the Isley Brothers did, with the exception of a couple of small label things and the couple of years that they spent on Motown. And it's, you know, and, mm. and those are easily found on some other compilations. And it's beautiful. There's a lot of bonus material on there that had never been released before. And, um, you know, and like with my liner notes, you get a lot of insight into what was going on album by album with the group. Scott, how many liner notes have you written up to this point? All I know is right now it's over 300. And my most current ones, one that just came out is Mother's Finest. Uh, two CD anthology on that band, which was an interracial, you know, black and white, uh, mm-hmm. truly a rock band. Although most, a lot of black fans only know them for the song "Love Changes," which is a, you know, a, a really sexy right. ballad that they did. Mm-hmm. But they're really a rock band. Mm-hmm. This is a band that uh, right. they could open for Aerosmith one day, and the very next right. day they could open a show for P-Funk. I mean. And and they were legit on both on both things, and, and they wouldn't change the set. It wasn't like okay, we're going to do a a more black set for this. No, their music was a pure amalgam of rock and funk, and they so they could they were the only band that could do that. You know, play with you know serious mm-hmm. arena rockers, and then play with the the funk festivals and not change their set. So that's wow. one of the most recent See, ones that, that that's I did. Out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I've done over three hundred, and coming up is. One, yeah, I have one coming up on Kashif. I have another one coming up on Angela Bofill. And like I said, I've done over 300 that crosses from Steve Arrington and Slave to Les McCann to the rock band Chicago <laughs> to fusion bands like Caldera, the Blackbirds. You know, I just um, 
It's my oh. favorite kind of writing to do because it's writing that is always going to be in somebody's record collection where um, magazines and newspapers okay. get thrown away. Liner note essays are always somewhere in somebody's collection unless they just really don't care and throw them away. Um, and it gets handed down, you know, like a parent might buy it and then it gets in the hands of their kids or their brother or somebody that comes over to visit who happens to listen to the music. And it's good to have the information mm -hmm. right there with the music. So that's why I love doing it. It's, it's my favorite kind of writing, although I do articles and blogs and all sorts of other stuff. I was going to ask you what how that whole thing came to be. Russ, you do a lot of writing, what you do. And when I think about how fast you type, like how many words you said you can type in a minute, Russ? About 100. <laughs> I can't I type can't that fast. Though. I can't write, though. If you saw my writing, you would go, he's got a problem. But uh, <laughs> but I would love to. I really need to. I, a long time ago, I, I really wish I had had your skill. You know, I wish that I had um, just taken a couple of extra typing classes, man, and, uh, and been able to be really fast with it because the worst part of my job is transcribing. You know, I love doing the interviews, and I love, you know, kind of putting everything together. But, man, going back and listening to interviews and transcribing them and then, you know, gleaning the essence out of them, that's the, the most workhorse part of the job. Yeah, that, uh, well, I got a question. I got a big question because I sit back and listen and let you guys chop it up. It's beautiful just uh, uh, hearing that dance. Um, me as a psychologist, and Rome as a psychologist, I've, I've been listening to you, and I, I sat back and analyzed, does he love what he does? And I know people, and I can tell you do. My question to you is, if you had to do it all over again, would you do what you do again? And number two, if you did, what was your most greatest memory in what you do? That one moment, that, moment, that one memory that made it just uh, just perfect to realize you were meant to do what you were supposed to do. You're listening to exciting premium content on KCW. You're listening to exciting premium content on KCWGTheTruth.com. I never started out on this journey to become a writer. I say that all the time. I thought I was going to be a drummer. You know, I wanted to be like Steve Gadd or Harvey Mason, who, you know, did sessions during the day and then was playing in clubs at night with everybody from Barbara Streisand to George Clinton. You know, I thought that was going to be my life. And then um, and, I, and then I wanted to be a, a radio uh, disc jockey. But once I got to work for a radio station, I found out that it was that I really enjoyed being in the music department because we got to decide what was being played on the station as opposed to just coming in for four hours a day and playing the music. I mean, that was that was a lot of fun. But getting into a station and finding out about music departments, you know, most people don't know about that. All you know about a radio station DJ from the outside looking right. in. Anyway, and to answer your other question, the biggest moment for me, you know, I kind of segued into becoming a writer. I wasn't trying to do it. It just happened. And uh, I took to it because I kind of had some natural writing skills and I knew a lot about music. And, I, you know, I did not go to school for it. I don't have any degree in it, you know, in music journalism or journalism, period, you know. But I have a passion. I love musicians. I love artists. And I love the underdog. And so it's not so much about me wanting to chase down. Like, I never got to interview Michael Jackson or Prince or uh, some of the big people. I've interviewed a lot of folks in my life. But because of where I worked, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't given the opportunity to, you know, interface with a lot of the top tier artists. But... 
you know, the the project that I always tell people is my all-time favorite of everything I ever did in the moment was when I got to produce a collection on Minnie Ripperton because doing that project, uh, I mean, I never got to meet Minnie. The project was called Petals, the Minnie uh, Ripperton Collection, which is a two-CD yeah, set. Yeah. And I got to yeah. pick all the music. I got to sequence it. I got to do some segues yeah. between certain songs that made it an experience. And in the process of doing the project, you know, because I'd already been doing stuff with George Benson, he hit me off with a an unreleased live version of Loving You that was up-tempo that nobody had ever heard before. It was recorded in Carnegie Hall with Hubert Laws and, and a few other people. I'm, I'm, that's The names of which are escaping me right now. But So I got to make something yeah. my way that... Um, that really had an impact, you know, and it was in print for about 10 years. It's out of print now. Um, I'd love for it to come back into print, but at this point, it's a collector's item. But every time I listen to it or look at it or hear people tell me about how wonderful it is, it just re it confirms for me that when I followed my passion, I was able to create something one of a kind and special. And it was all because of the passion that I had for it. And I just wish that everybody could get to do something like that at least once in your life, just to make something create something in your vision exactly as you wanted to do it and have it be successful and respected. And then even have to be respected mm. by other people. It's like for you to do something that satisfies your soul to its completion. I mean, and I did that in 2000. I started writing in 88. Um, and like I said, that project was about more than just writing. It was I got to do everything. So 12 years into my writing career and, and maybe, what, 30-something years into my life as a whole, I created something that is probably going to be the greatest thing I've ever done, but I hope not. I hope to do more on that level, okay. but that's Great. the most perfect thing. Awesome. That's the most perfect wow. thing. Well, and you know what? I, I saw on your page today, and I couldn't believe it, and somebody was actually watching the same thing I was watching this morning. They did the unsung episode on TV One that you appeared on. They showed that this morning, yeah. and so I was thinking about that, and I was reminded, I spoke to uh, Garth Trinidad a couple of days ago, and he told me that you and he had a conversation with uh, Dick Rudolph um, when that project yeah. you did came out. And so, you know what, Scott, we out of time. We're going to have to bring you back, brother. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> you, you have to well, I, I information. Really I mean, it. I feel I'm like... It, man. You know, I ain't never, never talked. But I'm sitting back learning, man. <laughs> this is man. Wow. It, it, it's me, too. Well, it's like, really Scott is that cat where... Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I appreciate you guys reaching out to me, man. I, I really do. It, it was, um, you know, I'm always at your beck and call if you if you need anything. You know, um, maybe the next time I'll have some other personal news to share about some other projects and some other air arenas that I'm getting into. Uh, but anything that you guys ever, you know, want to, you know, chop it up with me about, man, you know, my door's open. I appreciate the love. All right. We have to do lunch sometime, man. I want to hear some stories, man. Yes, indeed. I think I have yes, I have indeed. a few, so let's do it. <laughs> and I love to you. Eat. You, better, you better pack a lunch, <laughs> bro. Please. You better you better pack a couple of lunches. Right on. Well, this is KCWG, the Truth dot com. T. Russ. Yes, sir. Hey, you know I what? Think we you gotta... need to close the curtain on this one. Hey, hey, thank you, I... Mr. Galloway. Yes, sir. Thank you for for coming. Thank you. What, a, what an awesome uh, prize. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, so, uh, and T. E. Oh, absolutely. And so we want you guys to keep in touch with us on the Real Love, Real Talk Facebook page, Real Love, Real Talk 
Uncut on the Facebook page. Make sure you like and follow us and look for this show. We're going to put this show up in a little bit, and you'll be able to get more familiar with Mr. A. Scott Galloway so you can follow his work. Oh, by the way, before you go, Scott, where, where can they find you so they can follow your work? That's the, right now, Facebook is the best the best place. A. Scott Galloway is what I'm under on Facebook, and um, in the near future, I might have some other things, you know, Instagram and all that. I've been real tippy-toeing into that, but Facebook is the place. Facebook is the place, and that's where we'll go. T. Russ, I think we out of here, bro. Yeah, we out, man. Next week, we're going to do something on interracial relationships. What does that mean for today's culture? Hey, man, we're going to take it out. Hey, man, we had a great time. DJ Rome, T. Russ, Mr. Galloway. You listen to KCWG, The Truth. Real love, real talk. Uncut next Thursday. We out. One love. Peace. One love. Feel my vibe, about to serve something fat, holla, hear me right. The media taking up who they want to, forced to live like that, making power moves. Lacing hot tracks for my zeros, my pub and my kiro. I get down with sound, get down to triple O. Snakes in the game, heating up, I'm squeaking. God, open up the door, ain't no need for sneaking. Worldwide, name known, 2G, name owned. Every time on the road, do a show, love show. Motivated by Christ, give it all we can. Round the world in the day, cause we in demand. Do you love me? Riders never sleep, would you sub me? Bouncing in your chair. You just listened to an exclusive KCWG thetruth.com program on our subscription premium content channel. Thank you again for your support of KCWG thetruth.com, the best internet radio on the planet. 